it is the first Sunday of the new year, and on the first Sunday of each year, we have a tradition here at Orchard of walking through the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation, giving an overview of the Bible. Now, it's interesting because the sermon series that we're in right now is actually based on this sermon that I'm preaching this morning. Uh, I was chatting with the elders about the next upcoming sermon series, and I think Bill had the idea of, hey, why don't you take your first sermon of the year, turn it into a sermon series? I thought that'd be great, so we can go a little more in depth. So as we got closer to this Sunday, I thought, well, should we still do it? Should we still go through this sermon? And I think so, because as much as I love the sermon series and going a little more in depth, I also like this sermon that gives the broad overview of God's plan from Genesis to Revelation. So let me start with a question. This is actually for the kids. We don't have kids church today. So so I want to involve you a little bit. How many kids? Raise your hand. Did anybody get a book or books for Christmas? Anybody get some books? Anybody want to share what book they got? Anybody? Call it out. What'd you get? Brandon, what book did you get? Did you get a book? Uh-huh. What's it called? Do you remember? What was it? It was about Snowplow. It's good. You got a Oh, he's holding up the book you got. Star Wars book. Very nice. Very nice. One back there. Yeah. The Dreamkeeper's Daughter. Now, right here. What did you get? About what? A girl. It's good. Those, those are good books. How many of you that kids that got those books, how many of you have read them already? Couple? Oh, well, you got to get busy. Let's go. <laughs> Time is ticking. Got your work cut out for you. I love good books. I love good stories. I love, I love good kind of adventure books, fantasy books, science fiction books. I just, I love a good adventure story. Big fan of the Lord of the Rings series. And you know, you get into these stories... And you think, what's going to happen? And, and you get into these ones that are just page turners, you know? You get to the end of a chapter. I read at night. It's how I fall asleep. And, and I get to the end of a chapter, and something big happens. And it's like, oh, no, I got to read the next chapter now. And I'm up till 1 o'clock in the morning reading because I can't put the book down. But you always want to know what happens next. And so today, we're, we're looking at this overview of Scripture, and I'm going to cheat Okay, this is not how you should read your books, but I want to cheat this morning. You're going to let me cheat? You don't get to say, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) I want to turn to the end. Don't read your books this way, okay? But I want to start at the end in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, because I want you to see this is where we're ending up in this sermon, and I want you to see it from the very beginning. Because I believe all of Scripture can be seen through maybe three lenses. One is where we end up in Revelation. The other is where we begin in Genesis. And the third, of course, is the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all those lenses together shape how we should read the Bible. So here at the end, we see all of God's plans coming to fruition. And this is just a snippet. We'll look at more later. But in Revelation 21, 3, John sees this vision and he cries out, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be 
their God. This is what God wants for all of humanity. This is what God wants for you, for your children. It's what he wants for this church. It's what he wants for all followers of Jesus Christ. It's what he wanted for his people in the Old Testament and what he still wants for us today as New Testament people. He wants to be with us, to dwell with us, to be our God and for us to be his people. The rest of scripture is the long road of getting there. The long journey dealing with all the issues along the way of God working out his plan from the very beginning. And I love looking at scripture this way because it helps us to see there was never a plan B for God. God was not looking at things they took place along the way and go, oh, I guess I better change course now. I better try something different. This was his plan from the very beginning. And so now let's go back and let's start at the beginning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be flipping through a lot of passages. Open up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you're going to go through all of Scripture, you should start at the beginning. This is one of those Bible verses you should memorize. It's not that hard. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right here in chapter 1, verse 1 of book 1 of the Bible, we have one of, or maybe two or three of the most important theological themes that we have to wrestle with. Number one, there is a God. We didn't make him up. There are no humans on the scene. There's no culture. There is just God and nothing else. In the beginning, God. God exists before all things. He did not come from anywhere. No one created him. He has always existed because he is God. The second thing is that all things come from God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the rest of scripture, we know that not only did he create all things, but he created all things with a plan and a purpose wasn't just sitting up in heaven having random ideas and, and just splattering paint on a canvas and go, oh, look, there's a deer, there's a giraffe. He had a plan and a purpose with every stroke of his pen, with every wipe of the paintbrush that he used in creation, with every word that he spoke and creation came into being. He had a plan. If we skip forward to Genesis 1.27, we see that God creates with this purpose, especially creating humanity with a special purpose. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God creates us in his image. We did not determine ourselves. We did not create ourselves. We do not get to decide who we are. God created us for a purpose. And he had a pattern, an image in mind, an idea in mind of who we are to be. And we are patterned after who God is. Not equal to him, but in a special relationship with God's plan is for us to have a unique relationship among all of creation in such a way that we are able to reflect God's character, his nature, and his glory in a way that the rest of creation doesn't, or to an extent that the rest of creation cannot. God then puts Adam and Eve, the first two created beings, into this garden. Out of all of the wonderful creation that God makes, he creates something extra special, the Garden of Eden. And there he puts Adam 
and Eve. And he gives them everything they need. Notice in Genesis 2, 8 and 9, he gives them everything. He made all kinds of trees and he gives the trees to them for food. Everything they need is provided for them there in the garden. We also know from Genesis chapter 3, in just a little verse, there's this word or this phrase that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I love that image of God creating Adam and Eve, putting them in this garden so that he could just hang out with them there in the garden. God with us. Emmanuel. God has given us everything we need. He has a plan and a purpose. His plan is to be with us. His presence with us forever and ever. His purpose is for his glory and our good. But of course, problems come up. Journeys face issues along the way. And right away in Genesis chapter 3, we are introduced to the great problem of all of Scripture. The problem that seems to threaten to derail what we just read in Genesis 1 and derail what we read in Genesis 21, or Revelation 21 rather, this plan that God has. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, we see something in creation, the serpent, coming to Eve with a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. A creature, now we know later from scripture, this is Satan, this is the devil, but in the context of Genesis, it's very important, I think, the way the author portrays this. It is a creature. Adam and Eve have been given stewardship over all of creation. They have authority over the creatures. The creature should not be telling Adam and Eve what to do. And Adam Adam and Eve should not be listening. So we see an upending of God's creative purpose and his creative order. And look at the two things the serpent sows doubt about. First, he says, did God really say? So much of what happens in our own lives, so much of what happens in our world, so much of what happens in scripture in terms of trials and tribulations and struggles stem from those words, did God really say. There is often within us as human beings in the rebellion of our sinful nature, there is this constant doubt. Did God say this? It's usually followed by, and so what if he did? Does it really matter if God said this? The second thing that the certain causes them to doubt by saying that he told them not to eat from any tree in the garden, which is just blatantly untrue. And the serpent knows that. Adam and Eve know that. Eve corrects him. But it's interesting the doubt that's being sown there. By saying, did God forbid them from eating any tree? He's sowing this doubt, saying, God doesn't want you to have good things. He's holding back something from you. The woman, Eve, answers the serpent, you will not certainly die. And then he goes on. As the conflict grows, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here the serpent's lie comes to full fruition. God is being selfish. 
And there are things he's holding back from you that you will want and that are good for you. That's what the serpent is saying to Eve. God is holding out on you. And you have every right to be like God and do what you want. That is the great lie of sin. This doubt that God should be God. And the idea that maybe we would do a better job. All sin stems from that idea right there. I know better than God. And we see this thought come to fruition in Eve. In Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the fruit on the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. They sit in judgment on what God says. They sit in judgment on God's motives. They sit in judgment on God's command. And here sin enters the world. Sin is the great conflict in the world. The essence of sin, no matter what its expression is, the essence of sin is us, the sinner, putting our authority over and above God's. Every time we choose to do something that God has said not to do, we are saying, whether in our inward thoughts or our outward actions, we are saying, I know better. I never understood this as deeply as I do now until I became a father. Because growing up, I always thought, that's just not fair. How can God punish us for, it's just a little thing. I mean, they just ate this. They just did this. You just lied. You broke this command. What's the big deal? And then as a father, I realized something. When I told my child not to eat the cookie and they ate the cookie, my response had nothing to do with the cookie. The cookie was never the issue. My response, the feeling in my gut was, my child chose to disobey me. It was personal. They didn't accept my authority. They rebelled against it. That's where sin comes from. D.A. Carson uses the phrase, the de-godding of God. That at its heart, all sin is the de-godding of God. The attempt on our part to kick God off his throne and put anything else in his place, usually ourselves. That's what sin is. There's early evidence then in scripture of what happens in this conflict. In Genesis 5, we have the lineage of Adam and there's a repeated refrain Each generation he grew up, he had so many kids, and then he died. And the next person he grew up, lived for this long, then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And you remember what the serpent said to Eve? You will not surely die. And that's exactly what happened. Death has entered the world. If we skip forward to Genesis chapter 11... Humanity and and culture, they've grown to a point that they're trying to become self-sufficient and they have a plan. We're going to make sure that we make it in this world. We're going to find our own happiness, find our own peace. And I know this is so foreign and hard for us to understand, but I hope you can understand we still do these things today. We may not be building towers to do this, but we do all sorts of other things. We redefine definitions that God has given us in Scripture and saying, now we will be happy. 
We set aside God's commands and ideas and in the name of personal freedom when we say, now we'll be happy. It's the same thing. In this culture, the way they express themselves is they built this tower. And they said, so that we may make a name for ourselves. We want to be somebody. We want to be important in this world. We all want that. Not necessarily famous, but meaningful. Don't we want to know that our life means something? They say, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. We all want connections. We want relationships. We want family or community. And so they have this idea, and they think that if they do this, it'll keep them together. It's their own expression of personal freedom apart from God using their own plans. And it's interesting because in their culture, this idea of building this tower was, was an act of grabbing authority. We want to be like God. That's what it meant to build a tower to the heavens, that they could have this influence over God, they thought. They would be closer to him. The problem is, God knows their plan cannot succeed. He knows their plan will be harmful to them. And so he steps in, and in love and mercy, he frustrates their plan. This may seem odd in, in a sermon of an overview of Scripture. Why bring in the Tower of Babel? It's, it's often an overlooked thing in Scripture. But it's so important for what it sets up. Because God has a plan, and the Tower of Babel is one of many, but I think it's a very important example of us trying to put our plan on God or on our own lives and our own existence. But God has a plan already. And he knows his plan is better. And there is a theme throughout Scripture that though God might withhold judgment or action for a time, he will never allow merely human plans to overstep and overrule his glorious plan. That's hard to accept sometimes. But he loves us too much to simply let us go our own way. If you remember his plan, be with us to be our God. So now watch as he unfolds that plan in Scripture. Genesis chapter 12. This is right after the Tower of Babel, and it is no mistake. I think you have to read Genesis 12 right after Genesis 11 and keep this in mind. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God calls to Abraham. Listen to the words. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Remember the people at the Tower of Babel said, Come, we don't want to be scattered. Let's bring ourselves together. We'll make a name for ourselves. God says to Abraham, Leave your people. You go where I tell you to go. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will what? Make your name great. What did the Tower of Babel people want? Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. We want our lives to mean something. God comes to Abraham and says, yes, that's good. But you're not going to get it that way. Those people aren't going to find it that way. But Abraham, God says to him, I have something better for you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We talked last week about the end of that. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And Jesus Christ comes 
as the fulfillment of that blessing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Eventually, Abraham takes his family into Egypt. They're enslaved there. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have the Lord seeing the struggle and the trials of his people in Egypt. And he has raised up Moses to rescue them. And he has a plan to bring them into this promised land. Remember, God's plan is to be with his people. So he says, I I have a place for you. I'm going to deliver you, my people, the Jewish nation in Israel. Well, Egypt at this point. He says, I'm going to bring you to this place. But it's God who has to rescue them. This is another pattern in scripture. God does not show up to Moses or to the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and say, hey, do better. You got to step it up. You're not good enough. You need to work harder and try harder. And yet so much of Christian and religious teaching today is that exact thing. If you want to be loved and accepted by God, you better do better. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is we can't. They could not rescue themselves out of Egypt. They were hopelessly stuck, hopelessly enslaved. They needed to be rescued. And there's this powerful theme in Scripture that God rescues us because we cannot do it ourselves. And it's hard because just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like the people at the Tower of Babel, we want authority. We want to be in control. We want to be the master of of our own ship. We want to be the captain. We want to be in control. And yet faith in God means accepting the hard truth, but also the merciful truth. We're not in control. We need saved God brings his people out of Egypt and he brings them to this mountain and he gives them his law. He rescues them, saves them, and then he says, now let's talk about this relationship. Don't get that order wrong. God saves first and then he changes us. And the Ten Commandments start with these words. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you hear the echoes of the theme going back into the Garden of Eden? God says, look, this is what this relationship was meant to be in the first place. Do you hear the echoes of Revelation 21? This is what this relationship is going to be. I rescued you, or in the garden, I created you. I am your God. Do not follow anyone else. All the obedience of the law, all the heart of God's people to obey God comes out of the fact that God rescued them. Our obedience never leads to the rescue. It can't. I like using the image of of having a competition to jump across Lake Ontario and you line up all the best jumpers in the world and the rest of us and you say, okay, let's go. Whoever jumps the farthest, anybody that makes it to Canada gets the prize. All right, I'm going to do my best. And I run and I jump and I make it, I don't know, four feet, probably tripped in the sand on my way there, right? Some of you make it farther, five, six feet. Maybe you're still somewhat athletic, ran some track. Maybe you get 10 feet. 
Maybe the world record holder was there. I can't remember what it is. It was like 24, 25, 27 feet, somewhere in there. That's nuts. Like I'm there on the beach with my face in the sand and I'm looking up at the world record holder. Wow, he's amazing. Did he win? No. Oh, sure, looking at me, he's great. Like he's very impressive. But looking at Canada, which was the goal, he failed just like everybody else. This is the problem of sin. And this is the problem with all of worldly ideas and even religious ideas that say, try harder, do it yourself. They are working us to death to accomplish something that is impossible. It's no wonder people like Martin Luther came to this point of despair, realizing he could never be good enough. God came to the Israelites and saved them first, plucked them from the shore, put them in the promised land. And then he said, now let's talk about what it means for you to live in my presence. As we go forward in scripture, we go through the time of the judges and just the chaos in the land. We go through times of rebellion and sin as God's people in God's presence with him living among them in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. They still have a problem. They still have sin and rebellion in their hearts. And one day God raises up the prophet Jeremiah. And he calls to them and he says, if you, Israel, will return to me, if you put your detestable idols out of my sight, no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him, and in him they will boast. God calls his people back. He says, you've lost your focus. And this is one of the reasons I like preaching this sermon at the beginning of the year, because it is a time that we're questioning our focus. In one way, it's just some numbers on a page, a calendar page that is turned. But it is a good time to think, where is our focus? What things have we allowed to creep in that became idols in our own lives? In what ways have we turned away from the Lord and we need to turn back? And he promises to bless them. And this is this reminder of how God blessed Abraham and how he blessed them in in, uh, the Exodus and said, look, you're my people. Trust me. Going on in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 to 26, Jeremiah describes the effect of sin. It says, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Jeremiah is describing what the Israelites are going through in their rebellion. And he's describing this judgment of the Lord. But do you hear the way he's doing it? He's using the images of creation. Sin is the undoing of God's creative purposes. It's fighting against everything that God made us for. Sin leads to the undoing, the unwinding, and the undermining of God's purposes in our life. It is our attempt to kick God off his throne and take his place. God says later through the prophet Jeremiah, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel 
and with the people of Judah will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. There it is. It's one of those those lights flashing moments in scripture where we're reminded this is God's eternal plan to be God and for us to be his people and to live in this loving relationship with him. So we see these key themes. God is sovereign. He is sovereignly carrying out his plan. Humanity is lost and desperate in sin and separated from God because of our sin. And we cannot fix ourselves. And God in his mercy steps into that situation and does something about it. Like any good story, you get this build up to a battle. Maybe not the stories you read, but the adventure stories. And the battle's coming. And you wonder how it's going to turn out. What's going to happen? And as we flip forward in Scripture, we begin to see the victory of God's perfect plan. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we come to this verse. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Do you hear the themes that's bringing up? Matthew is not quoting these things to show how smart he is. He's not just quoting these things to be relevant to his Jewish audience. He is quoting these things to bring up these ideas to say, remember God's plan? God's plan is to be with us. Jesus is God with us. As Christ grows and he goes on and lives and he begins to minister and teach, we see God's plan on display. Jesus' life is the display of God with us. The way he treats people, the way he heals people, the way he teaches people about their own sin and their need of salvation, about God's love and his plan and his holiness. And all of this puts him at odds with the world that wants to be their own God. And so the world decided to kill him. And on a tension-filled evening, when in just a few hours uh, Jesus would be arrested, and then hours after that, a fake mockery of a trial, and then hung on a cross, and, and Jesus knowing all of these things, He gathers around a table with his disciples. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This meal that we're about to take in a moment, is to remind us. The meal that Jesus was taking with his disciples was to remind them of God's salvation all the way back in the Exodus when he rescued them from Egypt. And Jesus holds up some of the most important elements of this and he says, this is now about me. I am the one who will give my life for you. 
Jesus is God with us who came to save us through the shedding of his own blood and by allowing his body, his flesh to be broken in our place. Sin had to be paid for by the giving of life. It's the punishment. And so Jesus came and paid the price in our place. Promises between God and humanity had to be sealed in blood. And Jesus seals this eternal covenant, this promise from God to us through his own blood. He did what we could not. And then the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who shaped the world in his hands and called the mountains into existence, who holds the power of all life and all death, allowed his hands to be nailed to a cross. And at any moment, he could have ceased his suffering and judged those who were condemning him. And yet he chose to remain on that cross because he had a greater plan and a greater purpose. And in John 19.30, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What was finished? The problem of sin was solved. God's salvation had been offered. It had been come and accomplished. We've been singing a new song, and I'm excited to get back to it. It's the song. It was finished upon that cross. It is finished. That's why God doesn't come to us and say, now try a little harder, because it's already been finished. The trying was done by Jesus, and it was awesome. And it's way better than anything we could do. It is finished. God's plan to be with us among his people who are holy and purchased by him is finished. Jesus has come. But it's like the Bible comes to us and says, but wait, there's more. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, where this Victory of Christ over sin and death is applied to us. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This life is hard. And often disappointing. And there is a part of us, in many ways, like the Tower of Babel people. We want something we can hold on to. Something firm and unshakable. And we create our own things over and over and over again. And then for some reason we get mad at God when those things fail us. God has given us something better through Jesus Christ, a new birth into a living hope purchased through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, an inheritance that nothing can take away. The key theme here is victory through Jesus Christ. It is finished. 
And the rest of scripture brings about or shows us the effects of that victory. After this great conflict and a great victory, now that victory has to be proclaimed. It has to be told to the people that weren't there. And God creates this thing that is called the church. Just normal people like you and me, saved by Jesus Christ. And we have a call. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. Do you ever wish you knew the will of God for your life? Oh, if I only knew what God's will was for my life, then I would do it. Boom! There it is. Go deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Allow Him to change you and allow your life to be characterized by an overflowing sense of thanksgiving and worship. Everything else you will do as a human being, whether in your present or in your future, will come from that. Romans puts it another way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All throughout scripture, there's this repeated refrain of people trying to figure things out on their own, figure out what makes them happy, what will express their freedom and the way they want it. And God says, I saved you to be different. Christians, I know it's hard. I know it's awkward at times. It does not make us popular in this world. We must think differently. The world's ways are not God's ways. And we don't say that to condemn the world and point our fingers at them and say, no, no, you're horrible people. We need to be different so that we can stand up to the world and show them God has a better way. We are God's walking commercials. We are the missionaries sent into this world with the mission to share the gospel with all the world. Jesus comes to his disciples and he gives them their marching orders and there still are marching orders today. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God with his people. God changing his people, God's people trusting him and following him. And he mentions baptism, which is interesting because in the next couple weeks, we're going to have some people being baptized. I'm really excited about it because baptism is a public declaration. I am saved by Jesus Christ and I want you to know it. It is a public testimony that what saves us is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, we live in a dark world. And it's so easy as Christians today to allow that darkness to seep into our own hearts, in our own homes, in our own minds, and even our own churches. It's so easy to just go with the flow of how the world is going 
not try to cause waves or ripples. But God stepped into this sinful world because we were going the wrong direction and he loves us too much to allow us to keep going that way. And so now as followers of Christ, and I pray you are, day by day we need to stop ourselves and think, do I really believe it? Am I really trusting? And if I am, what difference should that make for my life today? We are called to be the light in the darkness. We are called to show this plan to the world. Every good book, every good story has a grand conclusion. The conclusion of Scripture we already looked at. Christ is coming. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's the conclusion of God's great plan. To live on the earth that he created with the people that he has called to be his own, who are reflecting his glory, who have been saved by him, and his presence is right there with them forever and ever. God's plan has never changed. And that's where the story of Scripture ends, it ends with a new beginning, an eternal story that will go on and on and on in God's perfect plan. We live now between the victory and the conclusion. The victory has been won and the conclusion, Jesus's reign on this earth forever and ever is coming This must make us different. And so I want to ask you at the beginning of this new year, what difference is that making in your life? Because this massive truth that you've heard today, either for the hundredth time or the first time or the millionth time, has to change us. It makes a difference. We live between the victory and the conclusion. And we have the profound honor of telling others about the victory that Jesus can have in their life. The victory he's already won over sin and death. And I pray that we will commit in this new year that we will know more of God's great plan. That we will trust more in God's great plan. That we will be shaped by and reflect this plan in our lives. And that we will live out this plan as a church. 
And I challenge you individually. One of the best ways you can go deeper in and grow in understanding God's plan is read the Bible for yourself. I love preaching. I love our Sunday school teachers. I love our Wednesday night teachers. I love small group leaders. But friends, if that's all you're ever partaking of God's word, you are missing so much. Make a plan this year. Doesn't have to be the entirety of scripture. Maybe it's just one book. Read through it. Pray through it. Start in the book of John if you have to. Or read through the New Testament. Or make a goal to read through all of scripture. But make a commitment to be people of the word of God this year. Because God has a great plan and a big picture for all of eternity and all of creation and for your life too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. But we are people that so often get lost in the details. And in the day-to-day details of our lives, some significant, some not so much. We start to doubt. We become distracted. We allow the words, did God really say, to invade our thoughts. We allow the questioning of your motives to come into our hearts. And all too often, we allow the expression of the idea that we could do a better job to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. And I pray, Father, today as your people, we would recommit ourselves to your great purpose, your great plan, and that we would submit ourselves and bow before you and say, you are God and we are not and your way is far better. And I pray that you would bless us and change us from the inside out. And that your plan and purpose would be carried out in our lives today, throughout 2023, throughout all of our lives, and into all eternity. We pray this in your name. Amen.